everybody. Welcome, welcome here to show 108 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis here, doing a little traveling these days, a stateside now in the US. Joined here by my co-host, Alec Harris, also from Eastern US and Halo Privacy. Alec, what's going on? Yeah, hey, good morning, guys. Good to have you in the US, Matthew. <laughs> good to be here for sure. Uh, and Michelle Keto Miner from Noddle. Michelle, what's going on? Hey, guys, good to be back. Yeah, definitely. A lot of travels for uh, all of us these uh, days, this summer. I hope all of you are doing well uh, as well. We figured we'd do a show here just in the last couple of weeks. Been a lot of interesting, uh, interesting articles, interesting topics coming up about privacy, spying, you know, the standard stuff of, uh, of Big Brother. So we figured we'd do a show. Uh, actually, I wanted to start it with our friend uh, Roma, founder of Hoddle Hoddle and the Honey Badger. He, uh, I guess, is getting off Twitter. Always had some good stuff to say, I thought, and I guess he's getting off Twitter. But I'll just read a couple of his uh, tweets here. He says, um, chatting with someone on, on Twitter about why he's getting off, says, this has nothing to do with Bitcoin specifically, and I have no business telling other people what to do, nor do I think they should. My reasons are personal. Even though being off social networks has some privacy benefits, they're not significant. You're still being tracked. Have no illusions about achieving privacy. Cell towers, phones, MAC addresses, Wi-Fi's, RFID, NFC, apps, even VPN apps, cookies, time zones, browsers themselves, IP addresses, search engines, translation engines, patterns of content consumption. This list goes on. You know, my role here, asking the uh, technical questions and not being a technical person. I know all of those things. I've heard, heard stories about all of those things, but... Yeah, when you compile a list like that, uh, even with all the tools at hand and stuff we want to try to talk about more for listeners to use, like, seems pretty daunting. This is my perennial soapbox, but there's nothing that you do that is connected in the kind of digital landscape sense that isn't collected, parsed, analyzed, contextualized, resold, and profited upon. It's just how it works. That is the nature of that ecosystem. It's driven by profits, uh, and data is money. So it's not all nefarious, uh, but the problem is that data, in some hands, is uh, collected for profit motive, and, and in other hands, uh, it, it can be abused. And sometimes those are the same, you know, you know, two parts of the same company. Uh, and in other cases, it's you know, data leaks or stolen data, you know. Any kind of version of collected data has potential to be manipulated for, for ill intent. It's a major problem, and the the only, you know, the the kind of knee jerk reaction is I'm done with technology, and you can do that. You can go live off grid in the woods by yourself. Um, but the reality is we live in a connected world, and so it's much more a question about mitigating risk and deciding your level of risk and being informed about that stuff too. Yeah, I, I think the list he, he made is pretty interesting actually because, well, there are things that which are pretty obvious for everyone like cookies, trackers, uh, mobile phone identifiers and so on. But like usage patterns is probably one of the scariest things because of all the big data platforms now and all the machine learning, it, we can actually uh, make meaning make meaning from this uh, from these usage patterns and 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 uh, yeah, it, it's scary. And it really 
doesn't seem like there's any way around it. I was actually up in uh, Columbus yesterday at OSU's campus and, you know, just walking down the street, listening to some students talking like, you know, oh, he messaged me on Instagram and this or that, like just literally, obviously these students, you know, the vast majority of them, the vast majority of everyone aren't really taking any steps to try to mitigate uh, their privacy and whatnot. But there's just so much like, yeah, this digital exhaust or whatever you call it, all this stuff in some way, shape or form is clearly being, uh, as you guys talked about, like there's patterns emerging, AI, everything. I mean, I know we can't solve all the problems here on the show, but like, are there any steps we can take for any of these? Should we tackle one thing in particular with this list or? Uh... Just before that, I, I just finished rewatching the that TV show Startup. I don't know if you if you watched that. Yeah, I saw the first part. Yeah, so in uh, in one of the latest l- later seasons, they actually like uh, make a focus group uh, with some young people and. Uh, I think it's a pretty accurate depiction, like some some girl says, like, but I want to get that targeted ads because that that's what I want. <laughs> yeah, well, that's and that's generational, too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, making some assumptions here, but, you know, I went to college before Facebook was a thing. And so it wasn't available to me. And I don't know if I would have been any wiser, you know, if I were in college right now, because, um, you know, you kind of are a product of your environment. But, you know, Michelle, you though. The metric that you grabbed onto, right, the pattern analysis, that that one is really interesting and we see it. So there's a couple obvious examples. Anyone who's ever set up a social media account, and you know, let's just pick on Facebook. Uh, Facebook has years and years of large data aggregation and analysis to be able to differentiate between what they determine to be normal human behavior and bot behavior or, or you know, kind of non-standard account interaction. Uh, and if you're setting up an account that is anything other than in your true name, you know, with your picture connecting to your friends. Facebook is really good at figuring out that you're, you know, maybe just creating a pseudonymous account or you're creating an account that you just use for research or, you know, it's, it's less than their intended kind of like uh, identifier account, the, your main primary account. Uh, and over the years, they've gotten better and better such that uh, basically, you have to create, a, create an account and act entirely human. And that means you know, how you log in, where you log in from, your initial connections, how often you engage, how often you post, what do you interact with, do you join groups, do you like things, uh, do you have direct messages. All of that stuff gets compiled into what you, know, you can kind of just tell by the way they block accounts is normal looking behavior and abnormal behavior. Uh, and this is the only way you accomplish that is by monitoring the, your user base for years and years with lots of data points. Uh, and the other version of this is that you know, everyone who has a credit card you know, may have had an experience where you get like a fraud alert message because you're trying to charge something or buy something that the card company determines to be outside of your pattern of life. So you drive somewhere, you, hit, you, know, you buy gas in a state that you haven't been to, or you, you, know, you don't notify them and you fly to a country you've never been to. And this is, this is you know, ostensibly good, right? They're protecting you because they see some abnormal uh, card behavior. But the way that they're able to do that is because they've been surveilling your financial interactions for years. And so they know what looks normal for you. Uh, and so this is one of those things that is sold as kind of like security theater. But the reality is uh, there's a big data collection machine on the back of that. And that's this kind of like pattern recognition that gets into what, you know, the really good companies, the ones who are really good at that, take it into being predictive. If you know enough about someone, you can predict where they're going to be, what they're going to do, who they're going to talk to in the future. Uh, and that's kind of the most dystopian version of it. So anyway, um, I appreciate that you brought that part of it up because I think you know, that's in Roma's tweet and that's one 
that's a little less obvious. You know, everyone thinks of collecting IP addresses, but that kind of uh, predictive pattern analysis, that's kind of one of the big ones. And that's what they sell to marketers. Because if you can predict someone's behavior, then you can sell them things. Are you working on obfuscating any of that, Alec, or utilizing any of that, or? <laughs> Not utilizing, right? That would, <laughs> I'm opposed to that. Just um, wondering. <laughs> it's so hard, right? It, it, I mean, how can you go up against Facebook, for instance? Um, you know, just ha being short, you know, $500 billion and, and 30,000 staff, it's difficult. Uh, and so the, the way to do it is to teach people judicious interactions with these platforms. So I'd prefer someone didn't have a Facebook page or didn't use it. Uh, and there's reason to actually keep your Facebook page if you have it, because you're kind of planting your flag, right? It becomes harder to impersonate you if you've had your, your page there and you don't have to use it. Uh, but once, once your data has been shared with Facebook, you're not going to get it back. So if you can kind of use it to create the one true version of you on Facebook, there's an argument to do that. Um, and same for any social media platform. But the, the reality is like, look at how you're, uh, look at how you're interacting with these platforms. What are your data sharing settings in your uh, phone or on your laptop? Uh, what credentials did you give them when you created your accounts? So did you use your one Gmail account that you use for everything else? Or did you use a single purpose email address? You know, what is your password? What are your uh, second factor login authentication mechanisms? Like all these things you, you can do to make it better. Uh, and I'll just take LinkedIn as an example. So if I have a LinkedIn page, uh, it's useful for, to me in kind of the professional world. Uh, if you go into the LinkedIn privacy settings, there's probably 50 or 60 privacy settings, and some of them are actually pretty good. Now, this doesn't make LinkedIn sort of a benign tech platform. They're still collecting data and reselling it. But you can go in and limit the amount of information that's available to non-LinkedIn users and to even people that are in your LinkedIn network. Uh, and you can also limit the availability of that data to be resold. So it's better than just kind of the baseline. Uh, and with any of these things, you have to go back in from time to time and check because they'll reset it. You know, they'll do some kind of you know, platform update or new terms of service and they'll reset those rules back to permissive. Uh, so that they can collect again. But you know, if you are going to live in the world and interact with these platforms, the best way to do it is to consider the risk uh, and kind of go in treating them as hostile and minimizing that interaction. Yeah, and uh, also probably one good piece of advice is like don't cross-post things on different social platforms uh, to to avoid um, like like this the same content definitely ties your two accounts together. So. Yeah, you use slightly different versions of things. And uh, for example, I I went a little far probably for for most people, but I'm having like a dedicated email address on a completely separate domain name only for my Facebook account. Uh, and recently I removed like all the content from it, um, which probably will lead to, to a suspension of the account one day, but whatever. <laughs> And yeah, about occupying the ground, I think that that's a very important thing because I, I wanted to to remove my LinkedIn account a few years ago and actually figured like that's a very bad move because anyone can just create an account in my, my name using a picture from another place and I will not even know about it if I don't have one. Another one I wanted to ask you guys about, I asked you about it um, when we first got together, I think, regarding VPNs. I've used the VPN a long time. I definitely recommend people use VPNs if they can. They're getting much more user-friendly and easier to use on phones these days and all the rest of it. 
But still, I mean, if I'm searching for anything on even like Brave or whatever, but I'm logged into my Google account on that browser and not in a private browser or whatever, if you're not like careful about that and you're logged into basically Google, doesn't that completely, at least from Google's perspective, negate the purpose of the VPN because you're still logged into Google while you're searching for stuff? Yeah, it's probably even worse because this way you uh, you tie this VPN outpoint to, to your identity. So all the services you will be using at the same time from the same VPN will potentially uh, have your identity. Like forget, and so you log out of a browser and then you log in, I don't know, Amazon or something. Should you use different VPNs for different services or... You know, things that are tied to your identity, tied to your name, even LinkedIn. Do you guys have any best practices there about how you can use a VPN around those things? I guess there's a place on the market for a solution to use, like, you know, this Cubes OS uh, operating system, which isolates uh, every app in a, in a, like a virtual machine. Uh, yeah. Maybe like if each of these isolated environments had a different VPN output point, uh, that would be something uh, interesting to do. But like generally, if you're talking about on the phone, it's probably pretty hard, right? I mean, you got to be very careful about, okay, I'm in this browser, then I get out of the browser and then I go into the Amazon app where my name is connected, like, or then I download an audiobook. It's not that easy to really sort of um, obfuscate these different places where you're searching online. On mobile, you probably have to have one device which is tied to your identity and use it like a regular device and, and one that is totally disconnected from it. Yeah, agreed. Mobile is, is super hard because, uh, because of the fact that it moves. There's all these data collection points that are you know unique to mobile that are really hard to get around because only your phone moves with you in the way that you go around the world, right? Your pattern of life. And so it's a fingerprint. So you can kind of do infinitely wise things on the device, but as long as it goes with you to the same gym at the same time, the same school, the same office and, you know, residential address and all that, uh, it's, it's going to be your phone no matter what you do. Use one phone for every of your activities. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's this privacy podcast that's called the Privacy and Security Podcast. Uh, and it's hosted by this guy named Mike Basil who's kind of one of the gurus of, of privacy, and he lives a very extreme version of that life. And so he actually turns off his phone at, within a certain radius of his home and never has a cell phone on in his home. Uh, and so, you know, he just lives his life that way. But, right, that's really difficult for the average person. And if you have little kids or, you know, you have family that you care for or you have a, a job that requires you to be constantly available, you know, those things aren't really achievable for the average person. It's funny, I mean, like, even if the company is sort of genuinely trying, I know that when we had Todd Weaver on, he was, he was sort of taking some, some small jabs at Apple, but still Apple has done a lot, I think, in recent years for the individual. But still, even then, you know, with their last upgrades and stuff and Facebook getting mad at them. But even then, like, you know how in Apple, if you're doing Google Maps and they say, like, okay, do you want to allow, always allow or allow once? And even if you say allow once, and it's from like your home and then you've used that before before those settings were initiated with Apple. I mean, it's still pretty easy, I imagine, for Google to know exactly where you live. And they know any, they know probably from 50 other vectors anyway where you live. So. Yeah, it's almost impossible. 
Uh, and so, you know, what can you do? Like, in my opinion, just don't be the easy target. Don't overshare. Don't, you know, intentionally give it to them. Um, make it harder. Uh, you can, you can minimize it, but to get around it entirely might be too hard. So what about this one? This was another one that was about 10 days ago, maybe a week and a half ago. I saw the headline that uh, Tucker Carlson, big cable news host here in the U.S., he claimed uh, due to old-fashioned email that um, he understood that the NSA was spying on him based on conversation, basically made big news, a lot of hoopla, you know, for one day, Rand Paul said we should look into it, yada, yada. Uh, and then, of course, the story goes away. Stories of, you know, government surveilling journalists, uh, unfortunately, not huge news, even in the U.S. You know, the Trump administration was accused of it. The Obama administration was accused of it. The Bush administration was accused of it. You know, uh, I, I think you'd probably go back and there's incidents of that in other countries, too. Um, doesn't at all justify it. Um, but, yeah, I don't know what the solution to that is. I, I have a feeling that the next administration will probably do it, too. seems like we're trying collectively to, like, push back against this sort of you know, the Leviathan of, of a lot of these crazy state apparatus, you know, agencies and institutions and things that have been put in place over the years. But I mean, you know, anybody who's like just slightly pushed down on the veneer from like the Snowden papers and work and stuff and whatever, however you feel about him one way or the other, you know that they're doing it. You know that, you know, they say that it's all for uh, the good and for the, uh, you know, the betterment of the citizens themselves. But I don't know. I mean, it, it goes back to how do you control your individual privacy as well? Like there's so many vectors, there's so many ways that they can try to uh, track you. It's like either you go hardcore. Yeah. You don't like have Wi-Fi in your house. You don't, you do things like turn off your phone, you know, close to your home as, uh, as you mentioned, Alec, or you just sort of get on and try to slowly but surely chip away with it. But it seems like there's nothing we can do. I mean, voting's not going to work. Like, you know, this apparatus just keeps growing. When I hear these stories, I mean, I, it's like, I think it's interesting that they're trying to like push back on it, but like, I think about the average person that's watching this cable news, even this breaking news, like how they're tracked. And this one even was about email. <laughs> it wasn't even about anything complicated. It was like, they were reading his emails. Uh, it's, it's just like one of a thousand stories that's gonna keep coming. It's depressing to me and makes me not wanna watch the news as usual. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And so it, it kind of like, leads into the Pegasus story too, right? Because a bunch of the, the targeted, so there were 50,000 phone numbers. This is the you know NSO group from Israel that has created. So they created a cell phone exploit um, and it the current instantiation of it can infect a phone with no click, right? So you just call that phone or you send it an iMessage or a WhatsApp message. Uh, and at that point, uh, it can take control of literally all the aspects of that device, so the camera, um, the, the radios on it, so the cellular, the NFC, the Wi-Fi, um, the Bluetooth, and it's got a keystroke logger. So, you know, if you thought that maybe just because you were using encrypted apps, you were protected, you're not, at least from, from Pegasus. Uh, and so, but the real problem there, right, those type of exploits exist, but the real problem is that it's no click. And so there's very little you could do. Uh, very little. And if you're one of the 50,000 names on that list, which I, supposedly The Guardian was going to publish more of them, uh, but at least 1,000 of them were just journalists, and you know many more are going to turn out to be dissidents, uh, then 
you know, everyone needs a phone. It's really hard to get by without one. And you have to share information about that phone with people if you're going to interact with them. So, you, you know, inevitably you're going to give out your phone number uh, and you might use that phone number to set up your WhatsApp account or your Signal account or whatever it is. Uh, and so, you know, some of po- folks that I've talked to in the last week have just asked how to defend against that. And it's really difficult. Like there's no easy, yeah, here's the, here's the fix. Just don't do that or push this button. Uh, but the, the one thing you could do is try to use communications applications that rely on handles as opposed to phone numbers. Because one of the, the major vectors for Pegasus is phone numbers. Because the phone number is tied to iMessage, it's tied to WhatsApp. Uh, it's tied to you know just calling into the device. And so now Pegasus has been launched through email too. Uh, but if you don't use your cellular number as the premise for the communications on your phone, then you're going to be a harder target, not impossible. And if a nation state's after you, you've got bigger problems. Uh, but yeah, I'd love actually hear what Michel has on Pegasus. Uh, not, not much to add, actually. Uh, for, uh, about applications that require your phone number as an identifier, you can also use like disposable phone numbers. Uh, we have that, uh, I, I mean, there is that service called Silent Link. Uh, it's pretty uh, small, I think, uh, right now, but you can basically get uh, virtual, it, it's a real phone number in the uh, UK. Uh, which uh, is loaded on your phone if your phone has uh, um, an eSIM, uh, the, the embedded SIM uh, in your phone. So you can, like on any recent uh, iPhone, you can get like a second uh, SIM card, which is actually a virtual one inside the phone. And you can load that number on that SIM card and use that number like for months to register for your services and then just dispose of the number. And uh, and it's not tied to your identity. You pay with Lightning uh you don't provide any identification whatsoever to get to get that number. Uh, this is awesome. I had not seen this. Is this is it a global enabled number or is it just? It's a UK number, but I don't see why you couldn't use it in any place. I mean, I, I yeah, it says international roaming. So yeah. this is awesome. Okay, but you could also just use Skype purchase, purchase Skype numbers the same way, right? Uh, I'm not sure you can receive text messages on Skype. Uh, you might not be. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. I think if you pay extra on Skype, you can, I believe, actually. But I haven't used Skype that way in a while. But um, yeah, that actually brings up uh, another point on there I wanted to, to ask you guys about because I remember watching this point in the movie The Dissident, which I highly recommend. I mean, it's a highly disturbing movie about uh, the murder of that uh, Saudi journalist in the Turkish embassy in Turkey, in the, in the, in the Saudi embassy in, in Turkey, Jamal Khashoggi. But um, they talked to this tech, uh, you know, this tech expert, security expert in the movie, and they focus on Pegasus a little bit in this movie. And he said, um, security experts, and obviously this is a different level of threat, uh, maybe, maybe not to what you deal with, Alec, in your day-to-day, but certainly with what we're talking about to our listeners on our show here is when, when you're talking about state actors trying to get into journalists' phones and other dissidents' phones and whatnot, as this tech expert said, he was like, you know, they can't hack... Uh, at least for now, they can't hack, you know, the, the apps like your signals, your telegrams can't really, you know, so far easily get inside of those. So they just choose to hack the phone. And then there they, you know, they give the example the the main, uh, the other main uh, Saudi dissident character in that movie, he, he did have his phone hacked because he clicked this uh, DHL link, which really wasn't from DHL. 
So that was one thing I was telling people, obviously just never, never, never click links on any emails. doesn't matter if you even know the email provider, if it's a subscription or what, just never, you know, just try to try to search for it online. Don't, don't click it. But then that brings up the issue that you mentioned at the beginning, Alec. I mean, I understand from reading this article that there are now ways where they can basically embed this software with no click. They just send it to your, just one of these apps and then somehow it can activate itself with no click. Yeah, it's horrifying, right? So there's like nothing you can do at that point. If you get the software embedded, I was talking about like trying to use you know, some of these solutions, some of these apps that don't have your number uh, tied to it, maybe. I hadn't heard that part yet. I didn't know that piece of the story, that actually this stuff could embed with literally not even clicking the link. It's so, it's probably an argument for something like, so I don't know if this is the case, but I, I doubt that Pegasus or the NSO group spent the time to make that exploit run on pure OS or on graphene OS or some of these, you know, alternative operating systems on devices. And so, you know, that might be one way to mitigate some of the risk. Um, and there is also, so Amnesty has a tool, uh, I'll, I'll get it to you so it can be in the show notes, but it's called uh, MVT, Mobile Verification Toolkit. And so you basically have to upload the image of your device onto your you know, laptop or desktop and then run this toolkit and it'll search for indications of you know, exploit or data that's going to, that's being egress to you know, um, unidentified IP addresses, that kind of thing. But how many people are gonna do that? I mean, maybe the people on this podcast would and maybe your listeners would, but the average person, probably not. Yeah, I actually found like an old uh, DEFCON talk about Pegasus. I didn't know that it was that old, uh, so I was a little surprised uh, that it made the news again. And uh, yeah, it's pretty scary to think like basically as long as uh, we will have bugs in in, in code, uh, this type of things will be possible and uh, bugs are not going anywhere. So yeah, that we, we have to learn to live with this. Yeah, so I mean, in in somewhat lighter privacy news, um, I mean, it's still horrifying, but lighter. Uh, so Samsung was called out by Motherboard, which is Vice Magazine's kind of tech wing, uh, for so their app that comes with the Samsung washer and dryer. Some of the recent models, it asks for certain permissions on your device when you install it, and it includes telephone location, camera, and contacts. Um, this is a great example of, you know, home IOT way overreaching. First of all, you're, you don't need an app for your washing machine. <laughs> Just surprise, right? You don't, uh, it's a one button machine. You put the clothes in and you push start. People have been operating them, you know, in an analog world for a long time. Um, but how do you know it's finished from another room? <laughs> because it beeps. <laughs> Come on. Uh, so yeah, but it's absurd, right? There's just, there's no reason it needs any of those permissions. Uh, and so, you know, the, obviously the kind of, the laughable side of it is you could say that then they could, you know, text all your contacts and let them know how soiled your laundry is or whatever. But uh, the reality is Samsung's gonna collect that information. You've granted that permission as part of, you know, the free experience of being able to start and stop your washer on an app uh, and they can, ascertain certain things about you as a consumer. Uh, they have an idea of how you interact with your device. Uh, and they, at a minimum, are gonna use that to target you for further products. But then they're probably gonna use that to uh, target other people for more products. And so, cool, that's how 
businesses work, but it's unnecessary that data is available to people that work at Samsung and the next time Samsung gets hacked, it's gonna be available to the rest of us. So, uh, I mean, feel free to just uh, pile onto Samsung, but there's no reason for any of this. And then one day your washer will refuse to, to wash blood of your clothes because it will suspect you of murder? Yeah, sure, <laughs> right. <laughs> Well into the core, yeah. it really is, if you stop and think about it. Rodolfo had a good uh, point, though, which I've, I guess I've heard people doing, but never really thought about it. And certainly no legal advice, probably avoid the warranty, but uh, yeah, you could just take the, the microphones out of some of these things. And, and obviously for the never install on your refrigerator, on your washing machine, never install uh, the smart software. Those are basic steps, I think. I have a related appliance story. Um, so it's just an anecdote from a client experience where this client did everything right. Uh, you know, did the whole at-home address obfuscation, bought their property and, um, you know, in the proper entity, paid for all their utilities cleanly. Uh, you know, they, they really, and they, there's a whole bunch of other things, right? But they went through all of the steps to make sure to separate their identity from their home address. Uh, but what happened was the builder of their home had been, I guess, trying to help them out. And so what they did is they, the builder installed a, obviously all the appliances in the kitchen, including the refrigerator. Uh, and someone came, you know, during that kind of um, home inspection period to fix something on that washer on, on the refrigerator. Uh, and the builder gave the name of the resident to the person that came to do the repair, which is a seemingly benign thing to do and probably what most people would do. And so the repair guy put that name down as the owner of the appliance and then gave it back to their home office that went in and put it in their database and resold it to home appliance insurance companies. And so a couple of weeks, a couple of months later, you know, client gets mail in their name at their home, you know, from the manufacturer of the refrigerator. Mm. Uh, and that's the only thing that ever arrived at their home, you know, since, you know, before and since in their name. Uh, and so, you know, this is like, this has nothing to do with Samsung and asking for your contacts, but it just shows you how, you know, lo small interactions can chirp out a little bit of data that you're not even thinking about. Uh, and the people around you are potential vectors for sharing data that you might not even think about. Uh, and so, you know, someone might say, well, you have to interact with, you know, every vendor in pseudo, which is something you can do, but also, you know, kind of a pain and people are going to think you're weird. I'm not opposed to it, but uh, again, like data is chirping out everywhere. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, you have these conflicting views, at least if you look at U.S. versus Europe. I mean, Europe is trying, at least they say on this sort of EU-wide parliamentary level, they say that they're trying to uphold the user's right to privacy and this GDPR and a lot of these uh, pieces of legislation that are making it very hard for companies to target you and hold your data unnecessarily or so on and so forth. But um, even if you have that sort of broad mindset, it just seems like, um, like you said, I mean, just these little, little bits of interaction, long, long steps that you've taken to, uh, to obfuscate and protect your privacy are just completely, completely out, out the window. So if I read too many of these stories, I just get depressed, so I don't know. Unless we have any other recommendations for our listeners, maybe we should go on another topic. What do you guys yeah. think? Um. <laughs> I don't know. Go hide. Obviously, we should end it on a good note, but um, use Halo privacy. What else should we be doing? Yeah, take it into your own hands. Um, you know, Halo can help. Other companies can help. Um, but it's it's probably not going to be done for you. 
So if it's something that matters to you, then, then you probably have to look into some of these tools yourself. Um, and the fortunate and unfortunate thing, this has been my experience and I've seen it over and over, is once you start you know, reading some terms of service, understanding how data is collected, uh, you know, understanding privacy policies, you're never going to look back, right? Once you've seen into that, it's demoralizing. And, and so you can you know, either kind of live in uh, denial or you can look into it and try to mitigate it, but uh, it's almost impossible to completely protect yourself from it. Yeah, I think the cabin in the woods is the best solution. So. Bitcoin Citadel. With your not all right. <laughs> uh, well, that, that means you're so connected to something, so probably not. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Even no noddle. <laughs> well, we, we still have to release the SAT only version, but yeah. But then you're going to be relying on Elon Musk to uh, destroy your sky. No, no, no. That so that's uh, that's only receiving actually it's for the block blockstream satellite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, but they're still running the bandwidth. Yeah. So I, I don't know about in GDPR, but under the CCPA, which is California's privacy law, uh, any any data broker company has to register with the state of California and that uh, that registry is public and so you can go down, I'll get this for the show notes too, you can go actually download the whole list uh, to date and the California law is I don't know, maybe two years old at this point, there's approaching 500 data brokers registered there and that's each of those companies is collecting and reselling data in large tranches uh, and some of them are massive. So, uh, yeah, if you're you know, trying to just worry about social media or just deal with Amazon, th there's a whole industry out there that, that's also collecting. Interesting. Yeah, well, I definitely think there are steps to take and we'll continue talking about them. But uh, yeah, if you go down too many rabbit holes there, it just gets a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit too much, at least for the average user as I consider myself to be. So, uh, so yeah. Keep trying to provide a little bit of light there. Moving on a little bit more to Bitcoin, though, but still with some privacy. I saw that the EU was to tighten some rules. Um, it was their Financial Action Task Force, F-A-T-F, um, which already works on wire transfers and bank-to-bank -bank payments and whatnot. As if this wasn't obvious enough that this was going to happen, but basically they're going to completely ban any provider of a, which I presume means hosted, I presume. Anonymous crypto asset wallets will be prohibited, just as they said anonymous bank accounts are, are prohibited and banned. So it seems that the EU is trying to uh, basically, I, I presume this goes in line with all the Binance regulatory news, uh, which I'm curious to get your thoughts about on that, guys. But basically, any sort of anonymous wallet holding at least as long as it's hosted by someone who's a direct, you know, tax-paying entity from the EU is going to be pretty much banned, as far as I understand, in the future. A very short comment on that. Uh, I think it's somewhat arbitrary. So I get it. It's your, if you're hosting a wallet somewhere, you should know who you're interacting with, and especially because money is involved. That's not totally unreasonable if you're a regulator. Uh, but... It's also saying like if someone pays cash for something in your store, you should know who they are when they buy it. it it's just not really how things work. Um, and I think what happens is in the, you know, arguably good intentions to limit crime and you know all the horrible things that can happen 
when people interact with financial services anonymously, you collect up and, and dispose of the privacy for the rest of us. And so I, I'm not sure that the trade-off analysis is always you know, favoring the rest of us in some of these calculations. I think it's for sure bad types of laws. I mean, it's not as crazy as the U.S. proposed laws uh, at the end of the Trump administration of trying to ban basically all private wallets, <laughs> which basically means as they're like mathematically, yeah, cryptographically based. I mean, when you get to some level, you're, you're getting back to the same software as code and free speech argument. I mean, you're just going to ban mathematically based software. I mean, it seems on many levels just... Mm-hmm. completely draconian, Orwellian, and impossible. Yeah, I was going to say, what do you want to bet the person or persons that wrote that law didn't know what they were talking about? Yes, many, many Bitcoins. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the Bitcoins, apparently. At least in France, I don't know what the status in uh, other European countries. I know Germany is using a lot of cash, but in France, for example, it's impossible to make any purchase in a store for a meaningful amount in cash. So we, like, even... Uh, in theory, even uh, private transactions like I buy something from you and if it exceeds a certain amount in cash, I'm supposed to declare it. So uh, cash is uh, almost not anonymous anymore here. But what's fun about all these stories is that actually the criminals using cash don't care about these laws anyway. So the only people impacted are the people who are doing legitimate stuff. So Michel, how much, like, what's the threshold? How much can you buy with cash before you? I think it's 1,000. Wow, so it's not like that much. Yeah, it's really not much. And you'll, uh, and there's also a limit like uh, the amount of cash you can have on you, uh, which is pretty low. Really? Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's pretty ridiculous. That's crazy. So you're, so if you're caught with, you know, $1,500 or something in cash, that's illegal? That might very well be the limit. I mean, the, it, it's strange because there's like the, the limit for people who live here and then there's the limit of what you can uh, take through the border, which is higher actually. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, in the US, it's a, I think it's 10,000 that you can come into. Yeah, I think it's like the pretty, pretty much the worldwide limit uh, is 10,000 of uh, US dollars or equivalent. Yeah, so Matthew, it sounds like you could walk around with more value in gold coins in your pocket than cash. <laughs> yeah, that's an old uh, gold joke as well, because if, you, if you're holding, I think gold and silver still have a statutory limit of their old, like, $42 or whatever an ounce, and um, it's like 371 grains of silver. It still is. It's like 80% of an ounce of silver uh, is actually the statutory definition of those metals. And so if you have coins that are actually stamped, uh, this many ounces, or if it's an ounce or half an ounce or whatever, you could you could use the that definition. There have been stories about this. I'm I'm sort of blanking now on on uh, some recent ones, but there have been stories of people that have tried to get away or get around those laws by using gold and silver, precisely uh, using the letter of the law uh, to get around those limits. Um, but anyway, it usually doesn't matter, and usually if they're, they're going to confiscate your money anyway at the border. So yeah, it's not advisable to take a lot of, a lot of cash sure. through the border anyway, because they're probably going to not, not look to those nuances too much. But again, this is like, it's so arbitrary, right? Because, you know, Kim Kardashian can fly to Paris with, you know, a $40,000 piece of jewelry. Yeah. Right? So uh, is this stuff enforced, Michel, or is this just you know, kind of weird laws. I think you have to kind of prove that you'll be using that and not 
uh, no intent to resell. Um, but yeah, when you're someone like that, I guess you don't have to. Yeah, but I think your your other point is more important. I mean, it's like these laws are made for criminals, and the criminals don't follow the law anyway. So the net problem that comes from these laws is it just makes life harder on the rest of us that are trying to just live, you know, normal, decent lives. And um, yeah, it's a perennial, you know, libertarian argument as well. When is the state going to be starved of some of these resources? They're just going to keep, keep just pressing harder with some of these, uh, these laws. But uh, maybe we can save that question for another show. Yeah. Uh, well, they're going to have to lift some of these limits somewhat because, uh, you know, at a certain point, $10,000 in purchasing power won't be much. And so... We're, we're gonna we're gonna need a little more cash. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, the the their goal is to reach zero ultimately. So yeah, it is nice to see though that finally they can't talk their way out of inflation this time. Uh, even though they're trying to like quote <laughs> the PCE, the CPI, all these different different indexes, they're all rising no matter uh, which way they try to calculate it. At least in the U.S., it's something that they're finally finally addressing head on, which you know shouldn't be a surprise when you've pumped in you know. Ten trillion dollars collectively in base money in the last year in the economy. So, well, Alec, I know you got a hard stop soon. Anything else, guys? We should talk about, or uh, have we thoroughly uh, depressed our listeners for the day? I was gonna say this is like there's been no rays of hope in this episode. (laughs) 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 We need to come back and do like a good one. You had this Amazon link about a digital currency lead. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, you know, uh, a friend just sent that over to me this morning, and it's. Hiring for uh, a, what was the actual title? Uh, A digital currency and blockchain product lead, but specifically uh, it's for payment acceptance, right? So we were just joking before the the show that, you know, Amazon's about to accept Bitcoin has, you know, been on the verge of happening according to news stories for five years. Uh, But if they're hiring someone to integrate payment acceptance, that's a pretty decent sign. Uh, and I do think that would be, you know, that would be a pretty bullish move, just because of the, you know, volume of transactions that flow through Amazon. And we've seen this, you know, with other merchants that accept crypto. Like it doesn't end up being a large portion of their transactions, but it's symbolic, first of all, uh, and it it will encourage people. So uh, this is an argument for utility of cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin. Uh, you know, the old you can't buy anything for it is a really difficult, or with it, is a really difficult argument to make if the world's largest retailer accepts it. Yeah, and I, and I guess there's also purely economical move because they they can't not know that Bitrofio is selling Amazon gift cards and probably other services as well. Um, so they, they already know that some people are using crypto to pay on their website. Sure. Yeah, I love those guys, actually. Absolutely. Yeah, Fed on 4 is great. Well, listen, guys, Alec, I know you got a jet, but... Um, yeah, let's let's uh, next discussion try to make it a little bit happier for the listeners. But I do think, uh, yeah, as always, you know, no one's gonna hold your hand too much. Uh, you got to take control of your own privacy yourself and do the best you can. So um, that's at least what I'm taking out of this. Yeah, I love it. Good talking to you guys as always. Cool. Let's catch up then very soon. And uh, yeah, Alec, definitely send me those links. I'll post it in the show notes. Yeah, you got it. Take care. Take care.